part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. Would you open your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 15? When you open to Luke chapter 15, you'll notice there uh, probably a very familiar passage to many people. It's uh, three parables, stories that Jesus told. Now, a lot of times when we look into the Bible and we see uh, like the seven lives that we just looked at, people like Zacchaeus, the woman at the well and different ones, those were real events. Those were real people. They were just like you and I. They came. And these were not just stories that Jesus told or that the Bible tells. These were actual accounts. But in his teaching, there were several times that Jesus would actually tell a story. And some people would say, oh, maybe they were based on real people in the community. Other people would say, no, he was just using that as an illustration. It really doesn't matter if they were based upon real people. Jesus told these stories always for a kingdom purpose. Every one of the parables that we have is always for the purpose of showing us some kind of a kingdom truth that Christ wanted us to know. And so as we open up our Bibles to Luke 15, you're going to notice that there was actually three stories back to back to back. And they were meant to be that way. They were actually said in an interchangeable or in a way that was linking one another because they all had to do with something that was lost. Talk about a lost sheep and about how that sheep herder would take and leave the 99 and he would go looking for that one lost sheep. And then we have the story about a woman who had 10 different coins and she lost one of the coins and she turns the house upside down and trying to find that one coin. And then we have this third one. Oftentimes we'll say that it's the parable of the prodigal son. It's really the lost son. And to me, most appropriate, it's really the lost sons. Because if we went on and read the the rest of the parable, we're only going to cover the first part today, we would find out that really most of the emphasis is probably at the end. But that doesn't have the same kind of uh, uh, power if you don't see the first part of it. And we're going to look at the first part about this lost son. And so Luke chapter 15, if you'd open there and we're going to find this story about a man who had two sons. And the youngest son does sometimes what the youngest son does. It's a little impetuous, kind of goes out and says, you know, Dad, I've been thinking. Now, I don't know about you, but any time that my kids would come up and say, Dad, I've been thinking. You know, I was, that was kind of a spirit of excitement. It could be anything. It could be from... Why were you thinking of that too? That is really good thought. You know, I don't know about your children, their personalities, but if a child comes up to you and says, I've been thinking. Well, this boy comes up and basically he says to the father, I've been thinking, you know, that I I really want to go out there and live my life. We're not told how old he is. We don't know how long this period of time. It's a story. It wasn't an actual event that happened. Could have been played off of an actual event. But this is a parable that Jesus tells us to present to us a kingdom truth. And in this story, this man who has two sons, one of the sons, the youngest son, comes and asks for his inheritance. Now, we need to understand in our culture that today we, we have inheritance. Maybe you've received inheritance in your lifetime. And when somebody passes, they, they sometimes pass on worldly belongings. Sometimes it may be a house, maybe it's you know, other things that were of uh, sentimental gain, and we pass them on to the next generation. Well, that still existed back in biblical times, and, and yet there was something really kind of key, and it's kind of key today, that most of the time we don't get an inheritance until somebody actually passes. 
not given the age of the son. We're not given the age of the father. All we know is that the son is young, and or he's the younger of the two, and he comes to his father who's very much living and says, Dad, can I have what's coming to me now? And, and you know, it, so we begin to see that there's, this is not going to be just, uh, you know, happily ever after type story, at least from the beginning, that there's, there's a little bit of a tension there. And when we begin to grasp that, that culture, the people that Jesus was telling to, would have captured that from the very beginning. There may have been, even been a gasp. There might have been somebody that actually said, do you hear what he just said? I think he made a mistake. The son is asking his living father for his inheritance. Because they would have known that this was just strange. This was not usual. And so he, he wants his independence. He wants to live life apart from the Father. That's the part that we really need to get, guys. It wasn't just, okay, Dad, write me a check so that I can go and do this, this, or this. No, the writing of the check, getting the inheritance, what we really see stressed here when we begin to, to examine this is he wanted life independent from the Father. didn't say that he didn't love his Father. It doesn't say that he just... Uh, didn't respect his father, even though there's an amount of disrespect in asking a living father for the inheritance. But one of the things that we see that is driving this young son is that he wants his independence. And we kind of get that. I mean, every one of us have a bent toward our own thinking. And all of us, even if we are followers of Jesus Christ, there's those days in our lives that we follow well, but then there's also those days that Christ tells us to go a certain way, maybe the way of forgiveness, maybe the way of this, that, and the other, and we don't really follow well. We get that as much as we might love Christ, that there's still this bent within us that from time to time wants to be independent of that relationship and do what we want to do. That's the situation here. We're not told how many times the the son would go and and ask the father, uh, but he finally relents. And look what it says in Luke 15, 13. Luke chapter 15, verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had. Let's stop right there. Now, why does he have something? Because the father just gave it to him, okay? So the, this father, who was more than likely reluctant, and at least that's the impression that we would get, that you're living, you don't give your inheritance away while you're living, he doesn't really want to be separated from the son. Maybe the son doesn't have the wisdom to be able to do life on his own wisely. And, and so the father is not really wanting the independence or the, even the broken relationship between his son and him. And, and yet he relents, and, and he gives, and not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had, basically the beneficiary of his father's graciousness there. And he took a long journey into the far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. I've made reference to this, I think, in a sermon about two years ago, and I told you then that there's a certain part of the King James Version that I now grew up with the King James Version, and I will always have a love toward that, the beauty, the poetry of it. But in this verse, I always remember riotous living, I think is what the King James says. And as I was a kid, I was always going, man, riotous living. What is riotous living? You know, and it was one of those things you just, it seemed dark. It just seemed kind of, man, you were really coloring outside the lines of acceptability there. 
Here it says, in, in the ESV it says, that he squandered his property in reckless living. He wanted a life of independence. He gets a life of independence. And, and when he gets that life of independence, he doesn't keep it within uh, the caution of wisdom on either side. He goes out and he squanders away. Again, we're not given any amount. We don't know if this was a rich, rich father. Certainly we know he has land, he has animals, and he has servants. So he's doing pretty well. And so this inheritance would have been probably pretty sizable. But that's the foundation to bring into things two, uh, two words that we see throughout the Bible and that a lot of times we will even use interchangeably. And that's the word mercy and the word grace. One theologian said it this way, mercy and grace are the same coin, they're just two different sides of the same coin. They, have, they are distinctly different, and yet at the same time, they kind of go together. What we see in this picture, in this story that God gives us this morning, to, to help us as we prepare our hearts and our minds to come to this table and to remember the sacrifice of Christ, is that this is a picture of both God's mercy and God's grace. It's not just his mercy. It's not just his grace. But it's actually both his grace and his mercy. Now, guys, I'm not trying to be the, the, the police theologian here or the, the word theologian here. I'm saying, okay, make sure you get mercy right and grace right. It's distinctive, and it's important that we know the distinctions because they really do kind of cover two different areas of the gift of what Christ has done for us. Mercy, by definition, even if you took it outside of the Bible and you were talking about a king and a servant in that kingdom, mercy is when someone doesn't punish somebody for what they really deserve to be punished for. Biblically, it means when we're talking about God's mercy, we're talking about when God doesn't punish us as our sin deserves, uh, delivering us from a rightful judgment. That God is not angry if he were to judge this way. He would be righteous. Justice would be done. And so mercy is when we deserve something and that punishment is withheld from us. You and I, all of us, have been reserved. Whether you're a Christian here today or not, all of us have uh, been the beneficiaries of mercy at some time in our life. It may have been from your parents. It may have been from your boss. It may have been from your spouse. It may have been from your you know, anybody in your life, that you deserve something. And, and even though you would argue, ah, that's a little extreme, you deserved it, and yet they withheld that punishment. Grace, on the other hand, by definition, biblically speaking, is when God blesses us in spite of the fact that we don't deserve it. So one is a withholding of what we deserve. The other one is a, a favorite uh, a favoritism, a, a blessing, something that happens kindness when God extends kindness to us and we didn't really deserve that. So do you see how they are kind of connected and yet they're two distinct things. God's mercy withholds judgment. His grace gives us blessing. And yet in everyday life, we kind of throw those words around. God in his mercy and grace. And if we use that terminology, God in his mercy and grace, we would be very much appropriate. And I want you to know that as we would come to this table today and we talk about God's mercy and grace, it would be very appropriate to use that language. Because this table reminds us that there was something that we deserved. And, and God, through Christ, withholds us from that judgment. Now, how did he do that? He, he took all of our sin that we deserved and he, he placed it on Christ. 
but we're also recipients. And we come as a reminder as this table that there were recipients of grace. But not only does he withhold the evil, or, or not the evil, the justice that could be done and the, the bad that could be done, what could be put upon us, but he gives us blessings. This story really illustrates that. It may be familiar to you, but I pray that you would look at it this morning and try to identify in this story mercy and grace. Look back at Luke 15. Look at verse 14 and 15. And when he, that is this younger son, had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. Son does what most of us do when we find ourselves in a dilemma. He tries to solve it himself. As much as we would love to say piously that, man, the minute I get into a dilemma, I just start praying. And maybe you do. But a lot of times, there's times in our lives that if it's just kind of an inch of water, maybe water up to our ankles, we, we get out our own bucket and we try to start bailing the water. It's only when the kind of gets up here that sometimes we're going, okay, God, this is helpless and hopeless, and I need you. Well, that's kind of the situation here. He has squandered all that the Father has given him and reckless living. And yet his first resource is his himself. I'll, I'll just go get a job. Again, as we've said before, if you're familiar with the New Testament and, and Jewish way of thinking, that would have been much of the crowd that was here. You have a lot of Jewish followers. You have the Pharisees. You have the religious people that are listening to these stories. And, and they would have really been appalled. If you would have heard another gasp, it would have been at, at verse 15 when this boy, this Jewish boy, goes out to get a job. But it's not just any job. It's a job to uh, feed the pigs. You know anything about the Jewish people? This was just against their rules. You would be considered ceremonially unclean. In other words, you can't go to church. You can't go and, and participate as you should. And so it was just kind of a breaking. You, you were defiled. And yet, this boy was saying, hey, you've got to get a job where you can, because we see that it's really a, a severe famine. There wasn't a lot of jobs around. It's amazing how practical we get instead of theological we get or spiritual we get when we really have trouble in our lives. And this boy's being very practical. He's not being very spiritual. He wanted a life independent from his father. Guess what? He kind of has a, a life independent from his father. That's an important note to to, to kind of take down in this story. He puts all of his effort, his brain power, his energy into fixing the situation. And and yet all that he gets in return is found in verse 16. Look what it says. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. He's feeding the pigs. Again, big spiritual no, though. He's biblically, ceremonially unclean. He's doing his job, though. And, and yet, in the course of doing his job, as he's feeding these pigs, he, he, his own hunger, his awareness of his own hunger comes, and, and he finds out that the very pig slop, what we would call pig slop, the pods, this refuge from the dinner table from, that you feed to the pigs, and the pigs are more than happy with, he wants some of that. But it's obvious that he cannot have that. Because he longs for it. And what does the last part of that verse say? 
And no one gave him anything. This plan to fix it himself doesn't work. And he finds himself very much in need. Now, one of the cold, hard realities in this world is that no one owes us anything. How many of y'all were told that by your parents? If you're younger, you've been told that by your parents in some form of fashion that no one owes you anything. How many of y'all just, yeah. How many of you, as you've grown up, found that that is a reality of life? That nobody owes you anything. That's one of the cold, hard realities of life here on earth. If we weren't the recipients of mercy and grace, even from one another, oh, what a terrible life that would be. I mean, if the rule is nobody owes you anything, what about the times when you cannot do it yourself? That's the situation this young man finds himself in. It's his own rebellion. You can very much conclude, well, you deserve what you get. But at the end of the day, guys, at the end of the day, is it really, really helpful to somebody who's hungry to remind them in the midst of their hunger that they simply just got what they deserved? I mean, yes, no. At the end of, at the, end of the day, in, in our sin and our rebellion, guys, and wanting at times independence from God, that we just want to do what we want to do. And we find ourselves broken. We find ourselves hungry. We find ourselves in this situation, like a spiritual situation like this boy. Is it really helpful if just God came out at that point in time and said, well, you know, you simply just got what you deserve. Number one, would God have the right to do that? Yes. Is that the heart of God? That's why this story exists. Here's the kingdom truth that he's trying to portray for us. These people that are trying to figure out, now who is this God? They have you know, hundreds, thousands of years of a history, Jewish history, to say, okay, God is this way. They certainly have man's opinion that God is this way. Here is Jesus saying, I want you, you want to know the Father? You want to know who God is? I'm telling you, this is how God is. Because I want you to know, spiritually speaking, that's where we were. We were that person in verse 16. Longing to be fed. Longing to be filled with something. Longing to have life. And finding out that nobody was there to to give us anything. And yet, instead of God saying, well, you just got what you deserve, look what happens. For the first time in a long time, this, this young man, I believe he starts thinking about his home. And in verse 17 it says, but when he came to himself, and other verses, uh, other translations it will say, and when he came to his senses, one of my favorite phrases in the whole Bible, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? Gut check time, reality check time. He goes, as I remember back this home that I left, and I left rebelliously, I left wanting my own way. But as I think back, you know, here I am hungry, and even my father's servants, they're not hungry. They have bread enough to eat. And he begins to think back at the grace 
and the mercy and the provision that his father had always provided for him as a son. It's in that desperation that he remembers that provision and, and it motivates him to go home. Now, had he had an unloving father, a father who hung over him all the time, you just get what you deserve and did not have the sign of, of grace and mercy and other things. I don't know that this boy would be heading home. Again, Jesus is the one telling the story. It's not real people. It's a story to illustrate a kingdom truth. And what he's trying to demonstrate is even when you and I leave and we wander and we even rebel, God's word and the truth of the character of the Father comes back And if we have a relationship with the Father, we know this Father. It motivates us to come back. Don't think that this boy is coming back heroically. That this boy is coming back deservingly. He's coming back and he's making that trip back on one thing and one motivation alone. And that is the kindness and the heart and the quality of the Father. The same father that he spurned, but the same father that he knows this is the kind of man that my father is. Now, why is that important for us this morning as we would come to this table? Guys, I don't know where you are in life right now. I don't know if you're on a spiritual high and this week has just been, hey, one more breath and I would be in glory. You know, one more, you know if, I, if it just things got any better, it would have to be heaven. I don't know if this week you have been broken before a holy God and you have admitted your sin and your need for him and your confession and say, God, I just need you. I am empty and I need you to fill me up. I don't know if this week you have been rebellious to a holy God. And you have said in your own spirit, in your own way, I want my independence from you. I don't know where you are. You don't know where I am. I just know that this table brings us together to a point of examining our own lives. That's what this word instructs us to do. You you examine your life and where are you at and what motivates us to come back to this table, even if we have been rebellious and sinful, is not, oh, we have this desire to be good again. the compassion, the grace, and the mercy in the heart of the Father. If you've been just living on the spiritual level this week, then this is just going to be an added act of worship for you this morning. Just a remembrance, as the Bible tells us, to remember the gift of Christ. If you have been overwhelmed, you're trying to fix it yourself, and you find yourself insufficient to meet your need, this is the reminder of the sufficiency of Christ. But brother, sister, if you find yourself in rebellion to a holy God, and if you're just being completely honest, you wanted your independence from God for a day, for a week, for for going on two weeks now, here's the invitation that God gives us by his mercy and his grace to confess before him, God, I've been trying to live independent from you, and I'm here before I come to this table to say, I need you. I confess my sin. I confess my, my desire for independence. And I confess, most of all, my need for you. That's what this table presents.
represents a lot of things. He said, you keep on doing this in remembrance of me. Why? So that, not just so that we would say, okay, yeah, he, he lived, he, he died, and he rose again. That is the important part of the work of Christ. But what he wants us to remember is because he knows, remember, that we're on this spiritual roller coaster, and we have our up days, and we have our down days. They put this word in there at the same time. But this table is only for Christians. Now that may sound like, oh, oh love you. You just don't know how grace and kind and you know, all this mercy that he has. And, and yet now you're going to restrict this table. Because until we come into relationship, guys, and, and all until we come into the, the knowledge and, and, and trust of Christ in our lives, you still are working independently of that work of Christ. And a lot of times, you know, that's, that's why I really don't like, forgive me if this hurts somebody's feelings, this whole thing, why I accept Christ into my life. Guys, if we get it theologically correct, he accepts us into his kingdom, okay? You know, he is the giver. We're, we're the receiver. And we're not sitting there, well, I might, you know, want Christ in my life. No, by his grace and his kindness, we have life in him. And so if you're here this morning, you, you, you haven't put your full faith of your rightness with the Holy God in the work of Christ and Christ alone, we're not trying to be mean. I promise you we're not trying to be mean-spirited. We are not trying to be ugly about it. But this table, this remembrance, comes when we've had the intimacy of knowing Christ. I've never done a wedding before in 500 plus weddings where it was a, a person who was walking with Christ and who wasn't walking with Christ or a Christian and a non-Christian. Well, Bobby, why don't you do that? Well, the Bible says don't be unequally yoked and so I, I tried to, to follow that. And there's been several times that people have come up and, and said, well, my fiance, you know, is, is not a Christian, but would you do the wedding? We want you to do the wedding. And I said, well, I'm, well, I'm honored that you're you know, asking and I said, uh, are they both Christians? And then we start to kind of go down this thing. Well, well no, he's not or she's not. And, and, and then I say this. I said, you know, guys, I can't do this because of the biblical commands upon me. But here, can I go talk to her? Can I go talk to her? What a better way to start off your married life than to be one in Christ. So, so we don't do this to be mean. We don't do this to be restrictive. But we want to keep that which God has made holy, and we want to keep it that way. But guys, this isn't to say, man, if you want to talk to me right after the service, and you say, man, I wasn't able to come to the table today because I haven't you know, put my full faith and trust in Christ. What a better day to come to Christ than today when God's got your mind and your heart and his, and his, you know, his mercy and his kindness right there before you. Does that make sense, guys? Because I want to talk about mercy and kindness of the Father. And then somebody leaving and going, well, that wasn't so merciful and kind. I want you to understand the fullness of what God has given us. We want to keep everything in this biblical perspective. Verse 18 and 19. This young man now reaches a verdict. And I use that word kind of purposely. He, he reaches a decision about his life and what he's done. And he reaches a verdict. It's not a judge placing this verdict on him. It's not a friend who came over. It's not his spouse going, well, you know, this is what I think. 
This is truly a verdict that he comes to by the grace of God, I think inspired by the Holy Spirit. And he says in verse 18 and 19, I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So what is, what is the verdict? What is the judgment that he has delivered upon himself? Go ahead and say it out loud. Guilty. And then what's the actual judgment? No longer to be what? Your son. He doesn't come back to the father, and the father says, well, here's my verdict. You are guilty, and you are no longer to be worthy of my son. No, the, the son's not even home. He's thinking, but what did it say in verse 17? That he came to his senses. He remembered the kindness and the mercy of his father, but he also realized the decisions that he's made, and so he's grappling and wrestling with all of that, and his own verdict is, I will say to my father, I have sinned, and I don't deserve to be your son. Nobody has given this. This is what he is convicted of. This is kind of what the conclusion that he is drawing. He's no longer to be worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. He realizes that in his mind, his sin has cost him his sonship. And if I left the sermon right now, we would be so biblically wrong. Because that's not where the story ends. Jesus doesn't say, yeah, you got what you deserve. Nobody owes you anything in this life. You did the crime, you do the time. But there's another verse, and another verse. Verse 20. And he arose and he came to his father, by what, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Verse 21. And the son said to him, and now, we don't know, again, Jesus doesn't give the details. A three days journey, six days journey, three miles, 30 miles, 60 miles. We don't know how many times this son has rehearsed this in his mind to almost become a mantra. I have sinned. I'm no longer be worthy to call your son. You know, can, you know, can I just be like a servant? He's rehearsed that perhaps over and over because the first thing out of the son's mouth, even seeing the kindness and the compassion of his father, his father coming to him, running to him, embracing him, kissing him. But verse 21, And the son said to the father, Father, I have sinned against heaven before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He acknowledges the sin. He acknowledges what he deserves. Sherry, you and I were talking about this week. What's the first word of verse 22, Sherry? But. Sherry and I were talking this week. The gospel is built around but God. If there wasn't a but God, there would not be us, guys. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. The ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Every one of those were signs in that culture of sonship. He wore the best robe. The, the, the ring would have been a signet ring, maybe the family crest. Servants, what he felt like, didn't wear sandals. Sons wore sandals. 
I want you to see that what he receives here is not just mercy. Mercy is what he deserved. It's really not even to be acknowledged. You've heard the term in our culture, you're dead to me. It would be very appropriate, those words, to, to fit the culture of that day. You asked your living father for the inheritance. In a way, you could use those words, but you're just, then you're dead to me. Here, here's your inheritance, but you're dead to me. Because you're treating me like that, so you're, so you're dead to me. If we're just kind of doing a tit-for-tat kind of things, if we're just kind of, okay, you, you touch me, I touch you, that's what you'd get. This is not what we get from this father. Not only did he receive mercy, and that he does not get what he deserves, the father did not even have to entertain his existence, but he gets grace. And that he's restored as a son. He's restored back in a family relationship. What is grace? God's blessing, even when it's not deserved. Verse 23 and 24. The father says, And bring the fatted calf and kill it, and let's eat and celebrate. For the son was dead, and, and he's alive again. He was lost, and he's found. And they began to celebrate. This table is a table of remembrance, but it is also a table of celebration. It's celebrate because we do get to remember what Christ has done for us. And so we come to it very spiritually. We come to it very solemnly. We, we come with a seriousness of mind. The Bible does say you examine your life before you come to this table. But that examination isn't for past fail about have you been a good enough Christian this week to come to this table. No, he says examine your heart. Why? So that when we do find that we've wanted to live life independently from God instead of running from this table and our independence, instead of coming to that conclusion and that verdict in our mind, I don't deserve to be your son. Can, can I can maybe even be just a servant? And we want to run from this table. He says, you remember the grace and the mercy of God so that you can come running to this table. This is the beauty of what we do, guys. It's one of the most beautiful acts of worship that we have that Christ has left with us. I love to sing the songs that we sing. I love to study the word. I love our times in prayer. I love our times together as a family. And yet this act that we have, this act of obedience that we have, that God said that Christ has instructed, you keep on doing this until I come back. Why does he say keep on doing it until until he comes back? So we don't forget him? Partly. But because when we come to that place and we examine our hearts, if you've been on that spiritual high, you come back and you say, okay, this spiritual high that I have this week is because of your grace and your mercy and the finished work of Christ, and I proclaim it. But if you've had a place in your life, even this last week or two weeks, you know, you know, honestly, as I examine my heart, I'm trying to live kind of independently from the word of God, the will of God, and the way of God. And I confess my sin, and what I deserve is this, but I know that I can run to this table. Why? Because it's all been finished in Jesus Christ. This may be one of the most beautiful places in all of earth, guys. One last verse. Hebrews 4.16 and I hate reading this one verse in isolation. Uh, in your bulletin, you actually have two more verses. 
I wish that we could have put all of chapter 4 in there because this is one of those that the full weight of this verse really exists when you take it in the full context. But because of time, unless you want to stay for another hour. Okay, I don't see hands. So we'll just have this one verse. The Q will. Q and I will meet afterwards. Yeah. You know, we're going to kind of grab it from its context. And you're, I want you to go back and you can read that context. Make sure that, that, that your pastor got it biblically correct and right. But look what he says. Let us then with confidence. He's talking about, you know, in the previous verses, he starts talking about this desire that we have and this feeling that we have. And we come under this conviction of, you know, that we haven't done right. And then sometimes we begin to wonder. I wonder if God even understands. And he's making this case that we have this great high priest in Jesus Christ who knows exactly what we're going through. And yet he's done this without sin. And look at the invitation that he gives to us in verse 16. Let us stand with what? With confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we might receive what? Mercy. What is mercy? Not getting what we deserve. And find what? Grace. What is that? Is when he blesses us with something that we don't deserve, but it's kind of on that positive side. He said, when you come, and he's not talking about just this table. He's just talking about relationship with Christ. He said, with confidence, you come before a holy God, not because you deserve so, not because you haven't reached that verdict in your own mind, guilty as charged. Can I just be a servant and not a son? That God, to you and me, in the same way as that father to do that son, throws his arms open wide and he said, you come to this table. You come into my throne on the holy work of my son. And you come on that, on those credentials. So what? So that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Don't know where you've been this week. Don't know if you're here. You're here. If you're questioning, you've been independent. This is a time of examination. Ricky's going to come and he's going to start playing. And we're just going to have a time of prayer. It won't be long and drawn out. Just a time for us to, to biblically say, okay, God, you know, here, here's why I've been. I acknowledge it. And, and maybe you even come to that verdict in your own mind. God, this is what I deserve. And yet here's what you're offering. That as a Christian... As one who, maybe it's been a long time since I've really acted upon, but, but I've put my faith and my trust in what Christ has done. I, I have you in my heart, and, and I come back to this table today, confessing my sin, proclaiming your grace and your mercy. It's a beautiful table. It's a beautiful table. One of the most beautiful places on earth this morning. Let's pray together. Father, help us never to become so familiar with grace and mercy that, that it, it no longer has its wonder. That your mercy is not seen as amazing, as that your grace would not be seen as amazing. Father, help us as we, that we would still be amazed by your grace, amazed by your mercy. And that this morning, fathers, we would come and worship. That we would come as people in need, confessing and professing our deep need for you. And that instead of running away from this table 
and our guilt, that we would run to this table knowing that our guilt and our sin has been paid sufficiently by the finished work of Christ. It is not by our basis, our goodness, that we come. It's by your mercy and your grace. And so, Father, now as we lead families, as we lead ourselves, as as we come corporately before you, we just give you this time as we ask all these things in Christ's name. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.